Uh, welcome to episode two of the Doors of Academia podcast. Um, I'm here with Dr. Peter Hendricks of UAB. <laughs> no, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's I'm so more sorry. More appropriate for the introduction. <laughs> no. uh, wait, which one was it? Was it this one? It was this one. Okay, cool. Uh, let's try this again. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, that's good. Welcome to episode two of the Doors of Academia podcast. I'm Danny here with Dr. Peter Hendricks of UAB. Thank you, thank you, <laughs> thank you. My adoring fans, thank you. <laughs> uh, so Dr. Hendricks is here. He uh, does some pretty interesting research here with, at UAB that are obviously in particular uh, with psychedelics. Um, I guess just given a little brief, what would you, how would you describe the research that you do? Uh, we are testing psilocybin as a potential therapeutic in the treatment of cocaine use disorder. We have upcoming trials in other substance use disorders and an upcoming trial with psilocybin in the treatment of fibromyalgia. So how would I describe what I do? I'm, I'm interested in psilocybin as a novel therapeutic in the treatment of, of both addiction and um, comorbid conditions, and pain would be one of those comorbid conditions. Okay, cool. Um, what has your experiences in this type of research been like um, since you've started? Well, that's a good question, and it takes us back almost two decades. Right. So it starts in 2006 when Roland Griffiths published his now um, landmark study of psilocybin in healthy volunteers. And that study was published in the same issue of the same journal as my dissertation on the early time course of smoking withdrawal effects. Much less interesting, my dissertation. But when I published my dissertation there, they sent me, the journal sent me a complimentary copy uh, to my little office at the University of California at San Francisco. And I opened this issue thinking I would turn to my article, excited to see my name in print. And I instead saw Roland's article and was just you know, mesmerized. And um, I think from that point forward, I was very interested in evaluating psilocybin as a treatment for substance use disorders. It took a while before I was able to do that because even, even in 2006 uh, with this article, it was a somewhat controversial area of study and there would not have been much funding available or you know, institutional or political support for this line of work. Um, I was interested in doing the work even in 2006, but was told that I'd, I'd have to wait, wait for ha perhaps the political landscape to change or wait until I had funds that I could use at my own discretion to study this topic. And by 2015 or so, I was able to start working in this area here now at UAB. I moved from California to UAB in 2010. And around 2015, we were able to start this, this trial of psilocybin and treatment of cocaine use disorder. Really, in 2016, we, we started. Um, and, uh, you know, I think earlier on, I'm, I'm sure I, some of my colleagues, who I will not name, probably thought I had lost my mind or that I was the second coming of Timothy Leary. And I tried to assure them that I was not, that I was uh, only interested in interrogating this question in a very objective, dispassionate, scientific manner. Um, but, you know, there's a, a long sensationalized history with these compounds. And um, I'm, I'm sure that many of my colleagues thought that I had gone off the deep end. Well, that's changed, I think, recently. There's a lot of interest, perhaps you'd say a lot of hype around these substances and, and maybe... You know, we're at, at some stage of that hype cycle where we might be disillusioned to some degree. Um, I'm not. I'm interested in pursuing this line of work further. Your original question was, remind me, um, what my experiences have been? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my experiences have been, um, you know, tracking with uh, public interest. First, being interested in this line of work because I felt that there was a potential to, to help people, which is really right. why I'm interested and um, perhaps being perceived as uh, having gone off the deep end to you know things, I think, coming around a bit and there being much more support for this line of work than I ever thought would be possible. I'm really happy to see that, right. but 
Whereas earlier on, I probably would have been in a position of trying to advocate for this line of work and mm. persuade others why we might have on our hands a you know, game-changing treatment. I'm probably now more often in a position where I'm, I'm having to encourage people to pump the brakes a bit right. and to say as, as, um, as promising as these treatments might be, mm-hmm. they're not going to be 100% effective for 100% of the people because right. nothing ever really is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I'm in that position. I'd rather have to pour a little cold water on the topic than to have to convince people that I'm that I'm not the second coming of Timothy Leary. <laughs> not that that would be a completely awful thing, by right. the way. I mean, he's a very brilliant, charismatic person. But other things he did, of course, were problematic. And I, I don't plan on following in his footsteps in that regard. Mm-hmm. So there's been quite a shift, and I'm, I'm happy to see that. And I think there's still a lot to do, many, many questions that need right. to be answered. I will only attempt to answer a, a small handful of them. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's really nice to see that there appears to be now a next generation of scientists who will come right. and, you know, carry the torch. And it's, it's interesting for me to hear you say um, or talk about you reading Roland's paper in 2005 because I would have literally been three years old at that time, which is <laughs> <laughs> crazy for That's me to right. think about. That's right. I was 30. What yeah, it's been a long journey. Yeah. What, uh, what about Roland's paper? Was there, was there something specific that stood out to you whenever you read it, if, if you remember? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've said this before, um, but I was you know, raised in the D.C. area in the 80s. Mm-hmm. My father was an attorney with the Department of Justice. Um, you know, that area is very highly political. So I was there at the height of uh, the war on drugs, or at least one of the heights of the war on drugs. I say mm-hmm. that because Reagan was president, and um, you know, he uh, was for reasons I don't completely understand, very concerned about cannabis. He thought it was the most dangerous drug in the United States, so he said in 1980. Um, not sure why he thought that was the case. It's <laughs> definitely not the most dangerous <laughs> drug, nor has it ever been. Right. But, you know, we were, at the time, at least I was living in a, um, a period of, I think, unprecedented, you might say, misinformation about the the range of drugs of potential misuse and the, the actual dangers they pose. I would have assumed that since um, psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, and other classic psychedelics were placed in Schedule One, that they were dangerous and addictive with no medical application. Because that's specifically the case with drugs that are placed in Schedule One. Right. That's the assumption. So I would have assumed that psilocybin was a dangerous and addictive drug. I, I really knew very little about it. Mm. And um, even as a undergraduate student in psychology and a graduate student, very little is, is offered, very little information is offered. Very, there's very little discussion about that first wave of psychedelic science. And I think typically in an, in an introduction to psychology textbook, there might be a paragraph or two. And, you know, typically it reads like, like this. So we had, you know, um, Freud and Young and these psychoanalytic or psychodynamic therapists that Danny, you are so fond of. <laughs> Maybe you could talk about that. <laughs> um, and then we had uh, behaviorists like John Watson and B.F. Skinner who um, took psychology to new levels by making it a science. Um, we had social psychologists who tried to better understand the horrors of World War II. And then we had this this weird sort of thing with people like Timothy Leary and and Richard Alpert who studied psychedelics or hallucinogens would be the preferred terminology. Mm. And that was kind of weird, whatever happened there in the 60s. (laughs) But moving on, we we then had what we have today, everything leading up to what we have today. Mm. But that's that's essentially what would have been discussed in most textbooks. Mm. Something weird happened in the 60s, but, you know, who knows what that was all about. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) So that would have been how I understood it. Uh, some sort of strange counterculture took place in the mm. late 60s, early 70s. Who knows what was going on there? But, right. you know, there was Vietnam, and there was Nixon, and there was mm. social upheaval. Well, do you think that would change if there was more validation given to these drugs and this type of therapy if in the future it may be more frequent to see, I guess, a more in-depth history of 
the, the 60s and the science that was done then. Well, maybe, and I, I think that's where I was going. Like, mm. before I encountered that study, right. all I really knew was mm. yeah, something weird happened back then. For right. some reason, people were really into LSD. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know what that's all about. It's just some sort of strange blip on the radar screen. <laughs> um, so when I encountered that article by the team at Hopkins, it challenged a number of my assumptions, right? It, much as psychedelics do for those who've had transcendent mystical type experiences, I was forced to see reality from a new perspective mm. for the first time. Wait a second. Um, they're not just hallucinogens. They do more than just create hallucinations. In fact, they don't even really create hallucinations. That is a, a tremendous misnomer. In fact. <laughs> um, to, to encounter that meant a complete shift in how I uh, saw some aspects of reality, including mm. what these drugs are, what they can really do, and of course, a turn toward that slice of our history mm. and understanding it from a new perspective. Um, so I see it now as more than just a strange blip on the radar, but clearly there was a counterculture that was being fueled by LSD, mm. and it seems like one message that that counterculture took from their experience was, we're all in it together, um, and uh, you know, humanity should be united in its sort of compassion or regard for one another. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be waging war, and we should we should be looking out for each other. But that is a, a message that is probably challenging to um, you know people in power, right? Um, and that might explain in part why psychedelics ended up in Schedule One, not because they actually were dangerous or addictive, but because the sort of experiences that people can have mm. um, can can be challenging to to you know, powerful people. You had a question before the one you just asked. Well, I was just going to ask on the topic of it uh, as Wait, far as... But before that, you said if people understood that history, might they have more respect oh, for yes, psychedelics yes, today? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, that was, I guess, part of the question. Um, I guess, would that, do you think, have an effect on the way that like the history of psychology is taught? Is you know, do you think that that would be more incorporated for you know later generations of people yes. that are psychology students? Yes, and I think you know many people who publish in this area feel like they need to include a paragraph or two mm. explaining what happened, mm. what happened in the fifties and sixties, seventies. I think that's important. Now maybe we understand that now, but I think that's important. As a child, one of my favorite movies was Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Have you seen it? Most people uh, have. Mm. Yeah. You might remember at the end of the movie, they take the ark and they put it in a wooden box, right. and they nail the box shut, and mm. then they file it away somewhere in this massive warehouse. Right. And I often have the view that um, psychedelics were treated in a similar way. Mm. Like there was this um, maybe tremendous power right. in these substances, uh, and, and that was widely, wi widely acknowledged, mm. um, and yet, um, someone decided that it was best that we just sort of um, put them in a box and right. nail the box shut and <laughs> file them away in a warehouse with the hopes that no one will will be interested again. Mm -hmm. But you know the the you know facts are stubborn things. The, the truth has a way of uh, rising to the surface, and I think the fact that these could be um, therapeutic agents, you know that that could not be buried. I mean. It, there, there was going to be a renewal of interest in these compounds. Right. In part because they've been around for so long. Mm -hmm. Humans have used them for so long. And they're widespread in nature. And also because most of our existing treatments just aren't especially effective. Mm -hmm. And a curious scientist or curious scientists were going to turn their attention to these substances once more. I think, uh, though, to answer your question, if, if we really understood what was at play, if we took an objective view of what happened and, and we tried to filter out the misinformation or propaganda, mm. then we would understand what happened then. And we would understand perhaps what these substances might do and what they might not do. Right. Um, I don't think it's helpful just to think of whatever happened at that time as a, a strange blip that could be explained only by you know, the, the, our involvement in Vietnam or you know, right. our, our opposition to communism or mm. you know, changing trends in music or fashion. I mean, clearly psychedelics are playing a, a, a major role in fueling that countercultural revolution, and I think we should acknowledge that and mm -hmm. acknowledge the effects, the acute effects of the drug and how they relate to the, some of the, the values of that counterculture. 
Well, I was about to ask you if you could articulate that a little bit more. Have a conversation, I guess. Well, I, th I think a common experience that many people have is uh, what is sometimes called unitary consciousness, this mm -hmm. idea that, um, you know, we're all bound together, our, f our fates are intertwined, we're all one, which um, in many ways is quite literally true. Uh, and though not everybody has that insight, mind mm -hmm. you, but I think at least the, the very visible counterculture very frequently did. Right. And what that would have meant, I think, for many of those people is we would rather not be in Vietnam waging war against our fellow humans. We would rather not, um, you know, engage in unchecked capitalistic practices that, that don't value basic human dignity. Um, and in fact, if, if, can't, if we can't do so, then we'd rather not even participate. So we're going to go off and live on a commune mm. somewhere. I don't blame anybody for having these sort of thoughts. Um, I, I think then that we had some portion of that generation burning draft cards and sort of signing out of capitalism altogether is not surprising considering the insights they may have had. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, you know, there's a quotation by Paul McCartney, and I'm gonna just paraphrase it, but it, at some point he said, you know, if the, if the world leaders all had just one experience with LSD, we'd have no poverty, no famine, no right. war. Now again, I don't know if that's actually true, mm -hmm. but I think the, the sort of insight that he had would be similar to the insight that many other people have had right. along the way. Mm -hmm. And that is, hey, we're all, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. And if we really grasp that, then many of the world's ills could be resolved. Now, of course, not everybody has that insight. Right, right? Right. As you and I have discussed, this great book called Acid Dreams by, by Lienstein document how a number of CIA agents had LSD experiences and didn't, didn't come away from those experiences that the Soviets were our friends. Mm. Right. Um, no, they were even more committed, I think, to the cause. So, mm. you know, the words of Stan Groff, perhaps these are non-specific amplifiers. They just, you know, make us more of who we already are. Right. Now, for some people, um, who we already are is uh, uh, someone who realizes that humanity is intertwined, mm -hmm. um, that we're all in it together. But not everyone feels that way, and sometimes the sort of connection that we feel might be limited only to our to our in-group or tribe, our mm. own collective. And I think that's something that, that fascinates me. Like, when we have these experiences, how do you predict whether one will feel this sort of connection or identification with all humanity or even all, all creation mm -hmm. versus feeling only connected with their, their, their own in-group or, or tribe? Right. And um, when we see that sort of effect with things that aren't psychedelics, mm. like religious practice. Right. And, and sometimes people from the world's of religious traditions have a, um, you know, receive a message resoundingly that we are all in it together and that we should be pushing for, you know, human rights. And, you know, people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Desmond Tutu are great examples. I think the, the world, world's faiths have very often pushed for um, in Improvements in the human condition, from um, uh, anti-slavery movements to civil rights movement here in the U.S. to anti-apartheid movements in South Africa and so on. But then other times we might see what we call religious extremism, and that is where religion might be used to divide us. And um, you know, the question from that perspective is: w When does religion unite us, and when does it divide us? I think. The track record is mixed, and I think we could also say that with psychedelics, it, it, it is likely mixed as well. Right. As an example, I came across an article years ago indicating that some neo-Nazi groups are especially fond of psychedelics. And that kind of runs counter to some of the narrative I even just I've provided today. Not everybody walks away with this impression that we're all in it together, right. that we're all in it together, that humanity mm -hmm. is bound by love. Some people walk away with, the again, the notion that my tribe, my mm -hmm. in-group, is in it together, but those outside are the enemy. Right. And I think a fascinating question is, not only w when do psychedelics lead to this greater identification, mm -hmm. but w when do any number of other experiences that are generally thought to increase social integration and cooperation lead to a greater degree of identification with humanity versus only to one's in-group? Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that, but I think that's an important question moving forward. No, that is, that is interesting. I, I guess I've never thought of it, but I definitely have heard the um, I guess 
obviously in Acid Dreams, we talk a lot about the the same thing that you were talking about with the the feeling of unification that people had, but that's obviously not a consistent thing from person to person. Um, not at all. Do you think there's any way to make either more likely or make have someone more likely to have either of those experiences? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a personality characteristic. Maybe right. you, you bring that with you. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's a result of your, like before I see you, you've right. got years of upbringing and um, values that you have inherited from your parents mm-hmm. and your friends and your educators and any number of other, you know, cultural institutions. I, I'm not exactly sure how you might maximize that outcome. I mean, it seems like it would be a good thing. Right. And that's my own bias. It mm. seems like it would be a good thing if we right. all realized <laughs> we, we share this pale blue dot in this massive universe mm. and that um, the more we work together, the better we'll do as a, as a species. I think that would be a good thing. But mm. h- how do we make sure that happens? I don't know. Uh, but I'm sure it has something to do with <laughs> personality culture and any number of other factors I think I think a scientist maybe a social psychologist could better answer that question mm. than I could do you think that um, obviously with the notion that these drugs had an influence in the 60s in the counterculture movement how do you think that they would affect our culture now if these were administered widely in clinical well, I think they have been if you look at the epidemiological data um, people people have been, People were and have been using psychedelics well after that countercultural movement. I mean, right. there's some perception that after the what late 60s, early 70s, that people stopped mm-hmm. using LSD or other psychedelics, but people continue to use them. And in <laughs> fact, we've even seen some interesting peaks in the in the 90s during the Clinton administration. Mm. Um, so, how would it affect us? I mean, I think maybe. We saw a um, something of a watershed event in in the late '60s. We we saw initially what happens to a population that has not previously had any experience mm. with psychedelics. How does it change? I think we saw that change, right. and from that point forward, the population continued to use psychedelics. Right. So I think that the best answer to your question might be um, to look at U.S. culture prior to at some point in the 60s, well, mm. maybe say late 60s, and after. And uh, you know, what, what can we specifically attribute to psychedelics? I don't know. It's hard to say. Right. But I've read that um, you know, interest in the ecology might in part stem from, from uh, exposure to LSD. Clearly things are not better now than they were though in the 60s, which mm. is disappointing. <laughs> Others have attributed the, the development of the internet to, to psychedelics. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. Um, but you know, I, I think clearly changes in artistic expression can be tracked to psychedelic experience. Like our, our, I think our music, or at least popular music, tra- changed drastically mm. in the 60s. And new genres, new ways of expression were introduced that are still used to this day. Right. Um, but it would be hard for me to say otherwise. You know, I'd have to really think about that. So you don't think that it necessarily went away? It kind of just blended in to the point that there the you point of distinction wasn't too clear? Yeah, never went away. That makes more sense. Hmm. I've never thought of it like that, but I guess it would make sense that it didn't just go away. No, 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 no. I can't it imagine that. I think it was just, it, it was, once it was introduced, it was um, you know, p- part, of the, part of our culture, part of our population. Now, mm-hmm. you know, the data would indicate maybe about 14% of the U.S. population has ever used a psychedelic. Wow. So still a majority haven't. Right. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between those who have and haven't? I think so. Um, but can we say that, that it's a rather sizable minority who have, that right. they've had a lasting Im- impact on the population and our values and artistic impression? It would seem to be the case. Mm. But, uh, you know, I'm just a psychologist, so I right. can't really say. I get that. Um, there was a, a thing that I wanted to circle back to when you were talking about, uh, which we were talking earlier about some of the misconceptions that people have um, about psychedelics and about how 
you said that it went from almost having to defend this line of work to having to, I guess, soften it and trying to yeah. put the, the brakes on a little bit. So what what do you, I guess, most commonly see as far as that goes? What do you think the, the misconceptions are towards the, the general Okay, public? so earlier it would have been, as I indicated, that these are dangerous. Right. These are especially dangerous. Mm-hmm. That if I gave you Danny psilocybin just one time you would forever lose your mind mm. that you'd be you know pushed off the brink never to return mm. um they're c- psilocybin and we'll just focus on that i mean there's there's nothing we ever do that's a, without risk nothing right so even behavior that we know is generally quite healthy can be risky like physical activity People have heart attacks while exercising, and that's why you know most gyms will have signs even now very clearly um, uh, posted signs that would say, "Please consult with your physician or medical professional before you start to exercise." Mm. I think that's because people have heart attacks on gym floors every year. And I say that, by the way, because Danny and I, and I met at the UAB Recreation Center. <laughs> this, this is a true story. I read um, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, and read the there's a there's a page in the book where it talks about Peter's publication on uh, awe as a mechanism in the psychedelic experience, and then I decided to come to UAB. <laughs> there it is. I can't remember what I was doing at the time, but maybe the story will be that I was doing heavy squats yeah. yelling at the top of my lungs mm-hmm. in the gym <laughs> and you came over to inquire about my my program of research <laughs> squatting <laughs> 2,000 pounds <laughs> <laughs> you waited in between yells yeah. to get a word in <laughs> so <laughs> people have heart attacks on gym floors even though we widely widely recognize that physical activity is one of the best things you could do for your physical and mental health and in fact I would say for example if you Danny told me you were feeling depressed I'd mm-hmm. say First things first, start exercising. Right. Start exercising. But even that is not without risk. So psilocybin is not without risk, but I would say that the risks have been, at least in the media prior to this more recent sort of increase in hype, completely overblown. Um, There was a, a great publication by David Nutt in The Lancet. When was this? Well... I want to say some some point between 2000 and 2010. And he essentially had a panel of experts closely review the literature, the available data, and, and rank the drugs, the range of drugs of potential misuse, as they put it, um, in terms of the harms that are posed to users and others. Now, alcohol was deemed the riskiest of all drugs of potential misuse. I think the score was something like a 70. Wow. Whereas um, psilocybin was given a score of five or six, right? So compared to a drug that is very widely consumed, Mm -hmm. that is commercialized, very widely available, even for people who are under the age of 21, you can attest to that as a college student. (laughs) A a drug, mind you, that is really promoted on college campuses. Mm. It's seen as a rite of passage that college students go to college and regularly binge drink. Drink to the point where they're blacking out. And, you know, a very sobering statistic is that thousands of college students die every year from an alcohol-related incident, mm. which is unbelievably tragic. Right. So we know that alcohol is one such example of a commercialized substance that is widely used and promoted you watch football on the weekends, you'll know that a good number of those commercials are beer commercials. Mm. Yet they claim almost 100,000 lives in the U.S. alone every year. And if if the media chose to report on alcohol-related deaths, that's all they'd ever do. If they chose to report on tobacco-related deaths, that's all they'd ever do. It's ironic then that, you know, from the perspective of, I think, general public perception at the time that I started this line of work um, and and maybe you know media coverage that psilocybin would have in some way been, been seen as 
more dangerous than alcohol or tobacco to commercialize and widely available drugs right. or substances. So I think back then th there would have been this thought that I was, I was you know, wading into dangerous waters, that mm. I was doing something very risky. I mean, which is just is, is not true. I mean, there, there are risks associated with psilocybin. And right. when we do research in this area, we go out of our way to protect those people who might be receiving it. Okay, so it will increase your heart rate and blood pressure transiently. But if you um, have hypertension, if your heart perhaps is um, not healthy, it may not be right for you. There would be a number of other things that may not be right for you, including your moderate to vigorous exercise. Mm. If you have a family or personal history of psychosis or bipolar disorder, psilocybin may not be right for you. It might exacerbate right. these conditions. Um, you know, beyond that, it's, it's pretty safe. Now, people have very intense, profound reactions to psilocybin. Mm. It can induce panic, anxiety, disorientation. So would I advocate that anybody well, that we administer psilocybin outside of, I think, carefully controlled context? Of course not. I think you know, our participants have to be in a, a place, in a setting that's safe, where they feel supported. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is very important because otherwise things can go wrong. And I think naturalistically, things do go wrong. People right. do have panic attacks. I mean, usually these panic attacks result in what best be described as mishaps. I guess there's this old sort of trope about someone you know running through traffic naked <laughs> which as you know, your reaction would suggest is is funny on some level especially if no one's ever harmed and mm. you just have someone who's streaking right. which is funny right. <laughs> um, the I think people are likely harmed in some way by psychedelics mm. but that is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction right. of the number of people who are harmed by alcohol and tobacco mm. So I think early on the idea was that I was I was working with something very dangerous, right. and as I mentioned, that perhaps I lost my mind. Mm -hmm. That has sort of the pendulum has swung now in the opposite direction, and I think the perception now is that psychedelics are um, without risk, uh, without any risk at all, and mm -hmm. are panaceas. They can cure anything and everything, and um, that's not the case either. You know, in the same way that, you know, again, physical activity, that's a great analogy. Physical activity can do a lot, a lot for your physical and mental health. I think everyone should do it if they're able. But um, if, if you are physically active, can I guarantee you'll live to 100, you know, die peacefully of natural causes in your sleep? No. Right. <laughs> you might still develop heart disease. You might right. still be diagnosed with cancer at some mm -hmm. point or, or diabetes. Um, you know, psychedelics, I think, could could indeed change the game, but you know my hope, say, if we use smoking cessation as an example, if our existing treatments help 30%, maybe less, but optimistically 30% of those who want to quit, quit smoking, maybe psilocybin could get that number up to 60%. Right. That would double mm -hmm. the efficacy rates of existing treatments, which is right. incredible. Mm -hmm. And if administered at the population level, We'd be saving millions of lives, millions. Right. But this still would mean that of 100 people who are given psilocybin to quit smoking, 40 would still be smoking. Mm. Um, so in other words, this isn't going to be effective 100% of the time, but very few things ever are. Right. So right. I think we should temper our expectations. What I would say is a happy medium. Um, this is not an especially risky agent, though it's absolutely not without risk. And we should be very careful in how we administer it. Right. Um, but it's also not something that's going to um, be effective for everybody. Mm -hmm. It could be more effective than what we currently have, which is really exciting. Right. That's, uh, I'd say that's generally been my understanding of it, is that it's not a one-solution-fix-everything you know, fix everything kind of treatment, but it is another option for people that may not have other options or have some reason some some quarrel with SSRIs or just formalized therapy that this is just it is another option for them to be able to get yeah. therapy yeah which makes sense um it is it is interesting that it's that the pendulum has swung so far to the other side that now it seems like you have to I guess you know hit the hit the brakes a little bit on people having to have too much hype on it 
Well, I, I, you know, we have industry involvement, which mm -hmm. I'm not opposed to. Mm -hmm. I think for, for better or worse, no matter how you might feel, we do live in a capitalist society. Right. And if we want to see a drug get to market, there has to be industry backing. I'm okay with this. If we want as many people to have access to this treatment as possible, we have to have industry backing. There's no way around that. Um, now, I industry backing, of course, requires investors, um, and investment requires some sort of projection of what might happen in the future. And um, you know, it could be that those who invested the funds have an overly rosy picture of the future, uh, and you know maybe maybe the hype could be attributed in part to the sort of optimistic expectations that some investors have, mm. or some companies might even promote in an attempt to woo their investors. Right. I think it is very accurate again to say that this could be a game-changing mm -hmm. treatment. Um, I almost said chain gaming. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's, again, I, I, I think it's okay to, to feel comfortable in a, a gray area. And that is to say, yeah, it could really be a game changer, but not for everybody. Right. That, that doesn't mean that this isn't an area worth pursuing or for investors an, an area worth in investing in. Mm -hmm. I just, I wouldn't operate under the expectation that this is a panacea because nothing ever is. Right, right, right. So I think that's how we, we are where we are now, mm -hmm. and, and it's all okay. If you study the hype cycle, then this is typically what happens. We have this period of unrealistic expectations followed by a period of disillusionment and then a period of enlightenment in which people see these substances for what they are. Mm. So I would just encourage uh, anybody interested in this field to kind of reach that period of enlightenment right. where, <laughs> where we say, yeah, okay, this isn't going to work for everybody all mm -hmm. the time, but could be a big um, improvement over what we currently have. Right, right. That makes sense. How, how do you think that's, uh, is your perception of it has changed ever since having started the cocaine study? No, not really. Mm. Have you seen yeah, I've worked in addiction for so long, I, I don't think I've, I was under the impression that anything would be 100% effective for everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm still very excited about it. Right. I think when I encounter people who think that, okay, in my study, for instance, everybody who gets psilocybin will stop using once and for all and never use again, mm -hmm. then I'd say, okay, that's, that's unrealistic. Right. That, just, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> and I'm conducting what, what you would call an efficacy study, the only point of which is to show that the intervention, in this case psilocybin, could have an effect on the outcome, which is cocaine use. Mm. It is not designed to approximate what um, psilocybin administration in the real world might look like. Mm -hmm. That's an diff entirely different question. We, we would typically call that an effectiveness study. I can show in a clinical trial that one administration of psilocybin can reduce the frequency of cocaine use. Mm -hmm. that's, that's great. And that, that would show only that psilocybin might have an impact on cocaine use. Right. The next question is then how do we best use that in the real world, in mm -hmm. real world clinic settings? And that's a different question altogether. Right. It might require multiple administrations over a period of time combined mm -hmm. with other treatments. Right. And it might be that in that setting, we have even better outcomes or perhaps worse. I mean, th these are questions that need to be answered. Um, but, uh, yeah, if I do encounter somebody who thinks we've, we've, we're on the solution to all the world's problems, then I'll, I'll have to suggest they pump the brakes. <laughs> right. That makes sense. Um so have you, I guess for the most part, seen that uh, the psilocybin has decreased the usage of cocaine? I wouldn't really know. We've, we've only unblinded the first 10 participants at mm. the request of our data safety and monitoring board. And the, the, those initial results, based on a small sample, um, did indeed suggest that psilocybin can reduce the frequency of cocaine use relative to placebo. Mm. But we'll have to see when we have the rest of the data in hand. Right, right. What are in, in what way do you think psilocybin, um, I guess, reacts with someone that is struggling with addiction versus someone that may not be struggling with addiction, someone that may just be taking it just for just for the well, hell of it? 
Wait, so the question is how might it work with someone who's dealing with a cocaine use disorder or substance mm-hmm. use disorder versus someone who's just dabbling in substance use? Mm-hmm. Or someone that's just taking it. Is there is there anything different that you see whenever someone is taking it that has um, a substance abuse disorder? Is there anything different? If that makes sense. Tr- okay, help me understand what you're asking. So is there a difference between somebody using psilocybin who has a substance use disorder mm-hmm. versus someone who does not have a substance use yes. disorder? Yes. Oh. I, I mean, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I mean, you had Haley on last time, is that mm-hmm. right? So I, I think... I was saying I did. Okay, yeah. So I think what we would both say is for people who have a substance use issue, there is something of a you know tunnel vision, a, a narrowing of attentional scope, right? Mm-hmm. Where someone would be focused on the drug, obtaining the drug, using the drug. And that might, for people who are very severely dependent, come to characterize a, a good part of their existence. Right? Every day they wake up and their thought is, how am I going to get it? Where am I going to get it? Where am I going to get the money to obtain it? Where am I going to use it? Mm-hmm. Then using it and then finding out once more where they might get it next time or recovering from having used, but much of their existence might revolve around obtaining and using the drug. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a hallmark of addiction. Now they might be in the, a, a place, and this is also a hallmark of addiction where they'd say, I really wish I could stop doing this, but I can't. I'm compelled. Um, and that's kind of at the heart of, of the word addiction. It means to be slave to something. Mm. Right? And those who are slave to something would say, look, I realize this is not a good position for me to be in, but I, I don't have control. And I think many people in that place would say, I've, I've lost control. I don't want to be doing this. I'm compelled to do it. And I wish that I could change. But a lot of that has to do with this, this narrowing of focus on obtaining and using the drug. Like when people have experiences with psilocybin, there is this, this experience where they'd say they're in the presence of something so vast and novel, so outside of their understanding that their attentional scope has now been broadened. Mm-hmm. So imagine looking through, looking through a, 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 a straw at a, uh, you know, a Salvador Dali painting. <laughs> and you might only notice one very specific element of that painting. Mm-hmm. And then somebody takes that straw away from you and tells you to look at this masterpiece all at once. It might be overwhelming. It might be intense. might be anxiety-provoking. But it's bound to be profound. Because now you're seeing, let's say, the hallucinogenic Toreador and all of its glory. Whereas before you were looking through a straw at only one small component of this masterpiece. Mm-hmm. So your focus would have been very narrow before. Now it's been broadened, and you can see a much wider uh, range of information, right. which may lead to insights, insights about why you do what you do, why you are who you are, why you behave the way you do, and how you might return from this state um, such that you can stop using this substance or change your behavior in an adaptive way right. and in a way that's sustainable. Mm-hmm. Now, some people return and would just say, oh, you know what, I was really focused on smoking or cocaine, whatever it might be. And now after having this experience, it's, it's like it just doesn't occur to me anymore. Right. I don't have any urges. The urges are just gone. I think for some people, maybe that's, it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for other people, it's often about some insights they've had, some insights they've had about, say, the effect that substance use is having on the people they love mm. and how a, that, that insight or acknowledgement has given them newfound motivation or commitment to abstinence because they, they don't want to harm the people they love. Right. Um, so, th- I mean, that's, that's a, it's a, it's an interesting experience. It's one that I think is sort of characterized by awe. Um, but it maybe for some people it's a very simple neurobiological process where there mm-hmm. may not be much of a subjective experience they, would, they just say hey I, I, I had a strong urge beforehand and now I don't right. and maybe it has something to do with inflammation it, it, there could be different pathways for different people mm-hmm. but I think since I'm a psychologist I'm very interested in subjective effects and for most people there's right. that sort of subjective component of broadening of attentional scope and insights novel connections made that help people change their behavior for the good mm-hmm. so um, I heard you saying there that you thought 
all was something that was, I guess, a key or um, something that was, I guess, essential to the efficacy of this being uh, therapeutic. Maybe. Same as scientists, so I'll say, I don't know. <laughs> I think so, but maybe. So then what what is awe to you then? What, how would you describe that? Well, again, I'm a, a child of the 80s, and I think the, the term awesome was used in my childhood to describe anything that was just cool or sure. neat. So we <laughs> forgot really what the word means. Like awesome. And I still use that to this day. Awesome. Mm. <laughs> but what does it really mean? It, it's, it, it's, you know, associated words would be wonder, amazement. You're in the presence of some sort of novel thing, some stimulus that's so vast and so outside your understanding that you just have to change the way you see reality. Mm. Your jaw drops. Maybe you get goosebumps. Your attention is drawn to this thing in such an intense way that you might kind of forget your own existence or presence for a period of time. Um, so imagine, you know, what it might be like to see the ocean for the first time. Right. Imagine what it might be like to see the night sky, all the stars in the night sky for the first time, having grown up, say, in an urban environment. Mm. Like, what might that be like for you, encountering something that can't be adequately described in words for the first time? I think people feel this, again, sense of wonder and amazement that their, their jaw drops, that there might be some element of fear because it's so different, so outside your understanding. It can be really intense, but you walk away with a, with a new view of reality and, again, with, with some novel connections or insights that you might form when you're sort of liberated, you might say, from this, this uh, intentional bias toward the self, you know, this self-focus where you're, you're only seeing things through a very narrow straw, right? Mm -hmm. You get some insights when you suddenly see things from a much broader perspective. So for anybody listening, for what, the 50 people who mm -hmm. might be listening, <laughs> <laughs> maybe more, um, you know, this. consider, you know, going on a hike, right. walking up a mountain, looking out at the valley below and just absorbing yourself in that, in that landscape. Like, what do you feel? What are the, the, the feelings you might notice in your body? What are the emotions you might feel? What are the thoughts you might experience? The same thing you might feel if you're, you're standing at the ocean floor and looking at this massive body of water in front of you or looking up at the night sky if you have a chance to really see all the stars in the sky. Like you, mm -hmm. you might find, you know, it feels kind of scary, but it also feels, it feels wonderful. You, you feel the sense of freedom, serenity, you suddenly might have some new ideas that you can only really form when you have the opportunity to you know, broaden your horizon. So I think when the, the term expanding consciousness was used you know, back in the day, there was something to that. Mm. Like people felt like this expansion of their intentional scope and they could make some novel right. connections and insights. And some of the research out of Hopkins would indicate that this sort of experience of insight might be an important part of the process. Mm. And I think that's consistent with the idea that people are having um, really profound experiences of awe. Do you, do you have any interest in the I guess, notion that people have that experience that um, people usually have whenever they're you know in very specific situations like seeing the ocean for the first time or going on a hike and looking at um, looking at a vast landscape or the Grand Canyon. I've also heard um, like astronauts seeing it whenever they look at the Earth from the moon. Do yeah. you have any interest in what a person is experiencing with blindfolds on, with, it, with eye shades on, that would give them that same experience? Well, I mean, I think the, the thing is that people do have these mystical type experiences mm. without drugs. Mm. A scientist named Ralph Hood has been exploring that since the early 70s at least. They're, they're somewhat rare and hard to predict, however. The, the thing that's interesting about psilocybin is it fairly reliably produces that sort of outcome. Not always, but fairly reliably. So if I wanted you to have, Danny, that kind of experience, I might suggest you do the things I just mentioned, mm -hmm. but there's no guarantee. Um, if, if I gave you a large enough dose of psilocybin and we tried to optimize the set and setting, pretty good chance you might have that experience um, which which is very convenient when you're when you're trying to leverage this as an intervention mm -hmm. so uh, maybe part of your question is why do we have them wear eye shades then 
Well, I th- I think my question is what what is it that you think is what's happening? Yeah, like what what is happening behind those eye shades for every person? I mean, I know that there's you know psychedelic artists like Alex Gray that try to like de- depict pictures and yeah. draw the geometric shapes that people may be seeing, but even all that, it just seems very interesting that whenever people are you know having a profound religious experience or seeing you know the Grand Canyon that people can have the similar feeling and experience whenever they're having eye shades on, whenever they're, you know, obviously under yeah. the influence of psilocybin. Well, the difference is they, they have ingested a substance mm-hmm. that is, you know, was developed by the fungus as a pesticide. Really? As far as we know, mm-hmm. from an evolutionary perspective, if you're the, the fungus, the mushroom is the fruiting body. Right. So, so you, you and I have had this conversation, but I'll repeat it here. You know, an apple is the fruiting body of the apple tree. Mm-hmm. The evolutionary strategy of the apple tree is that we eat the apple, consume the seeds, right. walk somewhere else, mm-hmm. poop out the seed, mm-hmm. where <laughs> potentially another apple tree can grow. Right. It's a beautiful little relationship we have with these these uh, plants. Mm. They provide you with something delicious to eat if you promise to then transport the seeds somewhere else. <laughs> Great, that works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the mushroom, the fungus, for the most part, it, and again, I'm using artistic language, but from an evolutionary perspective, frequently doesn't want to be consumed. Um, it, the, the purpose of the mushroom is to release spores sort of into the wind where they can be taken elsewhere. Right. For many mushrooms, for many fun- fungi, if you eat the mushroom, you prevent that mushroom from dropping spores. Mm. Now, some people argue there are some mushrooms there are some fungi that want the mushrooms, again, artistic language, to be picked because the, the spores, like their specialty is to cling to, to skin or clothing or hair and then release at some period of time. So maybe right. maybe some of the more delicious mushrooms that we eat, mm-hmm. maybe the strategy in that case is that we would cultivate, that we <laughs> would pick them and take them elsewhere. But for the most part, um, it's not the evolutionary strategy of the fungus that the mushrooms be consumed. Mm. So there is a pesticide that is produced, psilocybin, such that really it's about insects. If an insect stumbles along and begins to eat the mushroom, it gets disoriented and wanders away. It stops eating the mushroom. Mm. The mushroom has a chance to release its spores. Right. For some reason, when humans ingest this pesticide, we have these experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, I, I, we can say objectively, if, if you and I were out in the woods and we started feasting on fresh psilocybe mushrooms, it would only be a matter of time before we were completely disoriented and <laughs> unable to eat any further. <laughs> So right. it would be pretty effective. Right, right. But, um, you know, w- what's going on, I think maybe the best, the leading hypothesis is a sort of entropy in, um, in brain function, you know, that, that, the, um, that there's this change in default mode network connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, areas of our brain that don't typically communicate are communicating. Areas of our brain that typically communicate are communicating less. So our our perception of reality is altered. Right. Um, and for reasons I can't um, completely explain, it subjectively experiences a awe-inspiring, transcendent, mystical-type experience that mm-hmm. might be therapeutic. Right. Now, if we really want to get philosophical, well, we, we probably shouldn't, but if we really wanted to, like maybe there's some grander plan, and this is sort of touching on metaphysics. Right. You know, may- maybe there is some grander plan. Maybe these, these uh, mushrooms are here for a reason. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that sort of explanation. I mean, it's... It's kind of romantic in a way. Right. <laughs> if there's a higher power of some sort, perhaps it's the higher powers uh, plan that we make use of these mushrooms to improve our health. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I have no idea. Right. We're, we're just having fun right now, aren't we? Right. <laughs> there's no. So maybe it is. Maybe that's part of some higher powers plan that we make use of these these mushrooms. Maybe. Some people have even said, and that I, you know, who knows? If this is true, but again, this is just for fun. You know, maybe it's it's the mushroom's intent if we can if we can suggest that it has some degree of consciousness. Right. <laughs> I don't think it does. There's no nervous system there. But again, right. for fun, maybe you know if if we um, if we ingest the mushroom, we're more likely to cooperate, as I said before. And mm-hmm. when humans cooperate, we create societies. We create. We we have agriculture. Mm-hmm. We um, have livestock, and the the. The manure of the livestock is the mushroom's preferred substrate. <laughs> I didn't come up with this, but I think yeah. I've read this. So the idea is um, if, 
if the, the mushroom produces a substance that gets us to cooperate, we ultimately end up producing more substrate for the mushroom to grow on. Mm. <laughs> or, <laughs> or some people suggested maybe this is nature's way of communicating with us in some subtle way right. to um, you know, cooperate not only with each other but with, with uh, the ecology in some way that would you know, allow for the preservation of the uh, you know, ecology on the planet. Mm. I'm fine with any one of these interpretations. I mean, they're outside of my purview. Like right. I said, I'm just a psychologist, but it could sure be fun. Yeah. But to answer your question, I don't know why psilocybin does what <laughs> it does, it, but it does. Right, right. And, um, you know, it, as, as I've suggested, it's pretty safe, and mm. it might really help a lot of people change for the better, and ultimately, who cares? I might even say, like, in a, it's not a very intellectual or scientific way of thinking, but we could even say, like, who cares why it does what it does? Right, right. Who cares why psilocybin is there? Mm -hmm. If it's helping people, it's helping people, bottom right. line. It does what it does, and that's what it, that's what we need it to do. Yeah, I've seen uh, I've seen some jokes about it where it's talking about different types of mushrooms and have the different types of like defense mechanisms. Like this mushroom, if you eat it, will kill you. This oh yeah. one, if you eat, will give you a rash. And if you eat this mushroom, you know, like you'll see God. Like it's <laughs> a strange defense that it has. But well it that that seems to be the case for a lot of our like most of our psychoactive substances might arguably be um, pesticides. Mm. Like cocaine is from the coca plant. Right. It's a stimulant. Stimulants um, suppress your appetite. Mm. Isn't that interesting? So, you know, perhaps it's that strategy of the coca plant to right. give whatever might be eating it, usually an insect, mm -hmm. some kind of agent that makes it no longer want to eat. Right, right. Uh, uh, you know, probably the same with nicotine. Probably the same with caffeine. Mm -hmm. and probably the same with some of the xanthines and like tea, mm -hmm. cocoa. Um, with with like the poppy plant. You know, maybe that the the, the, uh, the opium and the poppy plant is designed to just sort of put you into a sleepy state where you stop right. eating, or or maybe again there's some evolutionary strategy where the plant wants to give you something <laughs> nice, yeah. and in exchange you you know go and cultivate it, you grow yeah. more of it. Yeah. Um, so that that's an interesting idea, but I mm -hmm. think in most cases like cocaine and nicotine and caffeine, right? These are pesticides that just happen to hijack this this uh, mesolimbic pathway in the brain and mm -hmm. for people who use them there's this impression that it's somehow a biologically meaningful reward that it's as important right. to your survival as food mm -hmm. or sex it's not but like <laughs> i said they just happen to hijack that system yeah that makes sense i mean I, either way it would help it survive <laughs> the plant oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> whether it's keeping things from eating it or encouraging humans to grow it right Either way, it's a good thing. Right, right. If it works either way, which I guess would make it harder to define or see which one is actually right, but I guess they both work. Yeah. I, I don't know. Again, mm -hmm. we'd have to ask somebody with actual qualifications, which is someone other than me, to <laughs> explain. I think you got a good bit of qualifications. Yeah, just a psychologist. So. <laughs> yeah. um, was there anything else that you'd like to add before? We've been... Um, can we can we hear the the disappointing sound sound effect now? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a good way to always maybe conclude an interview with me. I'm sorry, I tried my best. <laughs> no, there's not no, a whole lot no. I know, but there it is. Oh, it's probably the most insightful conversation I've had in a long time. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> see, that's a joke. <laughs> no, no. Well, thanks, Danny. I enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. I very much appreciate you. I don't think you understand. It's kind of like a dream come true for me. Like, oh, uh, really? Yeah. No, I definitely decided to come to UAB after I read that. Really? <laughs> yes. Can you, really quickly, your viewers will want to know, your listeners, sorry, where are you yes. from again? I'm from Enterprise, Alabama. Enterprise, Alabama, which mm -hmm. is down near the Gulf, right? Mm -hmm. so you have corner. no accent at all. Isn't no. that weird? Yeah, well, I, I think I just... I probably have the most default voice ever because I didn't adopt my dad's accent, I didn't adopt my mom's accent, and I didn't adopt any southern accent, so I probably just have a very, very default voice. You learn from newscasters. Probably. <laughs> probably. There's a good chance. Well, you know, it's cool that, that so many different people are interested in this, and for so many different reasons. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I could certainly now, I'm at a stage in my life where I could eye retirement. Mm. I'm 45. Right. Won't be doing this forever. Mm -hmm. can't be doing it forever even if I wanted to and it's it's really nice to know that like another generation of really talented bright motivated people are interested in running with it 
um, <laughs> to take it to places that I couldn't. I'm just, you know, I'm lucky to be to, to do a little something here to contribute. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, retiring somewhere to the woods of Montana and maybe emerging every now and then to see what people like you have been doing. Nice. Well, I hope we're bright and intelligent. <laughs> So you just have to drop the interest in psychodynamic models. I think I'm getting to the point. I think you guys are pushing me, <laughs> pushing me far enough. <laughs> Good. My, Good. My academic mentors, my academic people I look up to. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy to hear that. I just can't make any sense out of psychoanalytic or psychodynamic models. Slowly and slowly, I, I'm making less and less sense of it, so <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Good job on your front. All right. Yeah. No, I do really appreciate you coming on, though. It's uh, it, it has been really cool, especially just being able to work with you in general. I mean, I am very, very grateful that you let me sit in your lab. Well, thank you. <laughs> do things. I appreciate it. We, we're happy to have you, too. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I... I know I've told you before, but like literally, I I walk I saw you walk past me in the gym, and it was like a mirage. I was like, God, there he is. <laughs> it's like that's him, that's him. You know, it's it's funny. I'll, I'll just say as a concluding remark, you mm-hmm. know, there's this this something I've noticed. Fortunately, this isn't that common, but you know, when you work with psychedelics, and my friend Matt Johnson has commented on this before. Mm-hmm. There's there's sometimes this tendency to see those of us who work in this field as like gurus or shamans Mm -hmm. wise sage priests or something (laughs) along those lines. Saintly figures. Right. (laughs) And and I can see that in part because you know we're seen as gatekeepers to this experience Mm -hmm. that can be so life changing, can be so eye opening, that can be so awe inspiring. Mm -hmm. And we become associated with these experiences in some way. Mm -hmm. But you know, make no mistake we are nothing but scientists who are no different than you or anybody else. We're right. curious. You know, we've subjected ourselves to years of education. We have the credentials that allow us to do this research. Mm-hmm. But we, we have no more wisdom than anybody else. Right. We are certainly not, you know, s- sages or gurus or shamans mm-hmm. or priests. 